We are back with another episode of the Black Box Podcast. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Ahmed. And today we have John's longtime neighbor, uh, Hans Veredeling. Um, I'm sorry, Hans, when you're listening to this, um, that I'm most likely mispronouncing your name. Uh, but Hans came over from the Netherlands and now he lives uh, in the U.S. And he has made some pretty significant impacts in his industry. Um, it's probably an industry that many of us hadn't even thought of before listening to this, but um, taking audio and uh, visual data from commercials on TV, on radio and online, and basically uh, collecting that data and organizing it in a way where companies are able to do something or uh, make some sort of action with that data. Um, absolutely great speaker um, with uh, in Hans, and uh, thank you so much for enlightening us. And honestly, very, very much an inspiring episode of um, really, if you if you really are passionate about something, you should you should definitely focus on it and try to get better. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, thank you, Hans. Really appreciate it. And I'm glad I got to learn about your whole story too. I've been living across the street from you my whole life, <laughs> but I guess without further ado, we should jump into it. Let's do it. We're super excited to uh, announce on Black Box that we have our first advertisement. And it is with our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, which is what we've been using since day one to record remotely with our guests. Uh, and they've become a new sponsor for the show. So tune in, check out the podcast discount link in our show notes, and stay tuned to hear more about why we love Zencaster. Hey, guys, we're really excited to tell you guys about Black Ice, the black-owned jewelry business uh, owned by Sean Moore, who we've had on the podcast before. And if you just think about it, black box, black ice, it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. So, you know, jewelry in itself, obviously it's flashy, but you know, on black box, we like to talk more about the investment aspect. Gold jewelry, as well as watches are a physical asset class in their own, which is a bit safer. And if you've seen the markets in the past year or so, stock market and crypto have been down a lot, whereas gold is really good at preserving its value and that's what it's known for yeah i just wanted to mention that i've worked with him before personally to get a gift from my mother that was also a slightly custom piece as well uh, i have nothing but good things to say about sean he was easy he was flexible the price was fair and you know i met up with him quick and easy transaction and my mom loved the gift and it turned out great yeah so if all of this sounds good to you you could check out his website or his socials um it's black ice nyc but it's black with a v instead of an a and if you're looking for something stock you could find it there but he also does custom goods and he specializes in doing custom things with a quick turnaround uh yeah and also if you're looking for a specific item especially with you know watches Sean loves to do sourcing and because he's in the business it's a little bit better pricing than going directly through retail and working with you know the corporations we also think it's a bit better and we talk about that on the pod that you'd be supporting you know an upcoming entrepreneur and a small business instead of going and giving your money to these big corporations anyway yeah so again we're so excited to partner with Black Ice and be sure to check the description down below for uh, hit Sean's socials and his website and stay tuned for cool opportunities coming very soon. Just don't forget to mention the black box sent you.
hey Hans, thank you so Hi. much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You want to just start by introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, so I, um, you know, live across the street from where you grew up. <laughs> yep. um, I'm 59 years old. I uh, am, am originally from the Netherlands, and uh, I studied uh, business information systems. I have a I have a bachelor degree, and I have been working in uh, that field basically uh, ever since. Um, I got in uh, in contact with uh, with computers in the days that they were still printer terminals, no such thing as a mouse or a, you know a, a a graphics screen. It was all text based, and uh, it was a moonlander program that uh, you know you had to enter some information about the the velocity and the speed with which you wanted to burn, and then it would you know help to do a smooth landing and every time that you enter those values and you hit enter it would go on the printer and uh, you know i found that so fascinating that uh, that has never left me uh, so that was uh, a moment that i got uh, that i combined business information systems economics and uh, and uh, it um, and that's the field that I've been in ever since. I work for uh, the Dutch uh, Performing Rights Organization. That is the organization that takes care of uh, collecting and paying uh, money to composers, authors, and publishers of music. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that capacity, I got involved with uh, what is called fingerprint technology. I'm sure we'll get into that later. Uh, I set up a company, and that company got acquired by uh, a publisher that was uh, in the U.S., now uh, called Nielsen. Nielsen Media, which everybody has heard of, yeah. and that company uh, acquired that company that I set up and brought me over to the US. Um, and then I, uh, via via, got involved with um, with advertising and the similar technology as uh, Shazam or Soundhound uses to identify music uh, is something that I've been involved in for the last 20 years here in the US to develop that and deploy that in a uh, commercial setting. Uh, together with developers, etc. Um, and now I'm doing uh, some consulting. I left the company in 2018. I got tired of uh, commuting four and a half hours a day back and forth to New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I work from home. And I uh, like that very much um, and work for some companies in the same field. So, you know, it's uh, I'm a little bit of a one-trick pony in that sense because I've never been outside of that field, but it's very, very interesting and very exciting. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I'm married to an American, which made it easier to uh, to come here, live here, and work here uh, since I've become a U.S. citizen. And uh, I have two uh, children, or stepchildren, I should say, that uh, live in Memphis. And, uh, you know, that's uh, that's my life, basically. Very nice. Um, I guess I would like to talk a little bit about um, the advertising that you mentioned. Um, so when you... When you work with, do you work with advertising aid, like companies or agencies, or do you work with um, the companies who are trying to make some kind of of ad? No, so n- I'm not working with the companies that make the ads. The, what I work with is what I work f- worked for, uh, and still work with now are companies that basically monitor advertising that used to be on TV and radio. Now it's also online. You have to imagine that McDonald's. Uh, wants to know very uh, closely and very quickly what Burger King is doing. 
in terms of advertising. When they come out with an advertising campaign and they offer, you know, a Whopper with a uh, Diet Coke for $1.99 in the Dallas market, they want to know that preferably next morning so they can counter that within days with an advertising campaign of their own. Now, mm-hmm. that, that game of doing that and being able to do that fast and accurately is the game that I was involved with that a company like Nielsen is involved with. There's other companies that do that. And um, there are startup companies that uh, are trying to get into, into that field, particularly in the online space. And those companies are looking for either technology or they have the technology, but they are looking how to, they, they are wondering how do I implement this in my company and my existing operation. Or they have, or, or a little bit of both, or they have it implemented but they still uh, need to scale it or they need some help with the technical implementation of uh, uh, monitoring it in the Dallas market or in the California markets or, you know, in, in, in Florida, whatever it is. And I have experience with all of that because I set it up uh, in 100 markets uh, for the company that I work for called Competitrack. Um, and, uh, you know, that is valuable expertise and experience. I managed an operation. I was responsible for a staff of 80 uh, I helped to uh, offshore that operation at some point from uh, working with people in New York to having those people in uh, in, uh, in Jamaica, the island, and also in India. Because you have to imagine, even though the technology, again, think Shazam, think Soundhound, identifying a Coca-Cola ad, there's still all sorts of metadata that is relevant for the people that buy that information. And the people that buy that information are either Coca, uh, McDonald's and, and Burger King, like I mentioned, but also the ad agencies uh, uh, that represent those uh, those companies or any other party that is interested, um, you know, including performing rights organizations that I used to work for in the Netherlands that want to know the McDonald's ads, how often they play because the music used in those commercials is actually uh, owned by a composer that would like to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a it's a big world uh, that goes on behind the scenes that nobody really uh, knows about, but uh, that is very valuable. It has a huge economic value that business. Um, so there is a lot of uh, money that goes around, both in terms of investments as well as in in uh, revenues, and um, you know, like I said, money changing hands and being paid to people that have a right to that uh, to that money. Awesome. So, so is, is the, like the real software behind this kind of technology, is it um, based on like audio and visual, like, uh, like picking up the audio, like frequencies or like, yeah, no, that's, so that's the key question uh, that uh, sets me apart from a lot of other people, because there is a lot of different technologies uh, out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, not many people even under, well, more and more people understand it now. Again, 20 years ago, if I would uh, talk at birthday parties about what I did and what I was involved in, people looked at me like they had no idea. Now all I have to do is mention Shazam and Soundhound and everybody says, oh, okay, I know what that is. Um, so there's technology that is audio-based that just works on the audio track and you can hear a McDonald's ad when you turn on the TV and you close your eyes, you can still tell what advertisement is coming on TV. Yeah. What, you may, what you may not know is that it shows on the screen that the offer is valid for the month of June 
or that you have a $500 cashback offer. That information may, it may sometimes be in the video. If a, if a client, if a company wants to go into that sort of granularity, then they need the video-based information and sometimes both. Now, as you can imagine, as you both are technically inclined and your audience is probably also, the more detail, the more granularity you introduce, whether it's audio only, video only, or both, the more computing power you need to have. Um, so it simply is a function of that and the amount of money that people are, are willing to invest in whether it answers their, their business questions. And that is exactly that, that uh, what I said earlier, that, that applying of the technology uh, that I consider myself uh, an expert in, that I can help people to make those decisions. Yeah. Not only from a technical perspective, but also from a cost and a potential revenue perspective that I can help them make those decisions. Yeah, I was going to say, if you can't really leverage the technology well, then you can't create a product, which which in turn will create revenue. So That's right. If you yep. just have the technology but don't have the proper use cases, then it's almost uh, just a waste of time. But I don't want to so, say waste you know, of time. I, 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 I have, term. I'm actually working right now with two clients. One client had a, te had a technology that was archaic, audio only for monitoring of TV, actually, in this case, linear, you know, linear, t linear TV. Do you, do you guys even still know what that is, TV? Uh, <laughs> so no. li linear, linear TV, they were using a technology that was audio only based and their clients actually complained because of those reasons that I just gave you, that there's information on the screen and the clients were expecting to see the distinction between those uh, occurrences. Another client that I work with actually has the other way around. They feel that they are spending too much money on their technology and too much, you know, uh, CPU power and, and machines and all of that for a product that is very detailed, but they don't need it because their clients aren't asking for it. Um, so in both cases, I've been able to help them to make a better, a better choice and a better decision. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but with Zencaster, the product that we use to record our episodes, it doesn't really have to be. Zencaster's all-in-one web-based solution makes the process pretty quick and painless, which is, you know, the way we really want it to be. If you've been listening to The Black Box for a while now, you know that we constantly talk about how we want to bring the best quality and the best content for our listeners, you guys. And with Zencaster, they provide crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video for us as we record our episodes with our guests. Uh, not to mention it's easy to use. That's why we really like it because instead of having to coach, you know, guests on how to set up a podcast if they haven't been on one before, we basically just say show up with a mic and a, a computer and you're good to go with Zencaster. Zencaster is all about making your podcast experience easy and and with everything from local recording to automatic post-production tools, if you want to use those, uh, you don't even have to leave your browser to get the entire episode done. If you go to zen.ai slash blackbox and enter our promo code blackbox, you'll get 30% off on your first three months of Zencaster Pro. That's zen.ai slash blackbox, B-L-A-C-K-B-O-X. It's time to share your story. So when you incorporate the video, like you did the audio, um, is that like a frame-by-frame -frame analysis? Are you taking each frame and kind of analyzing it? Yes. So most technologies indeed do that. You know, it used to be different, but now CPUs are so powerful that you can do a frame-by-frame -frame basis, right? American TV goes at a frame rate of 30 frames a second. So you basically have to analyze information at a rate of 30 frames a second. You can do that in a number of ways. Um, the technology that I'm most familiar with and that, that, that I helped develop 
uh, developed it that based on luminance. So that's basically black and white value uh, mm -hmm. in each of the in each of the frames, and it created a matrix of that information and basically would store that and that's and that storing of that 30 times a 30 times per second was called a fingerprint uh, and that and that is unique just like it's unique if you watch tv you can recognize each every each second to be unique the fingerprint is unique and then uh, you know the trick is obviously to have the algorithms developed in such a way that your false positive rate or your or your uh, false negative rate is um, as low as possible and that the results are uh, as, as, as fast as possible. So if you have a 30 second ad, you would preferably have that information accurately available at the 31st second, even though even there are companies now that want to have that sooner than that. To give you an example, uh, there have been uh, companies that I've worked with in the past uh, that wanted to present on a second screen uh, a coupon, for example, for Burger King, as the ad was playing on TV. So, you know, you would be on your phone or on your tablet, and the TV would be on playing, and there would be a Burger King ad, and op pop, uh, pops up a, uh, a coupon for Burger King on your screen as the ad is playing on TV. Uh, now, that requires, uh, you know, computing power and accuracy that is, uh, that is pretty hard to find, actually, and, and comes at a price. It's expensive, but it can be done. That can, so is that, is there no, like, security or privacy concern with that? If, like, an like some kind of advertising agency is able to pop, like have pop-ups on yeah. your personal devices. Yeah, you have to you have to uh, opt in. Obviously, it's uh, similar to uh, if you now go and buy a TV. Uh, all TVs are smart TVs, right? Yeah. And if you are connecting them and setting them up, you have to go through a number of these "I agree" and uh, and "I consent" screens with text that nobody reads. But uh, one of those options is that uh, most of those companies uh, uh, have you agree to the fact that you will uh, allow your information to be sent to marketing companies, monitoring companies. I know of, I know of uh, one or two companies that actually buy the information from the smart TV providers uh, that collect the information of the channels that you're watching and when you're watching them. Uh, and this is the same way. So you have to opt in for the fact that your uh, that your uh, tablet, for example, is uh, synced with your TV or linked with your TV, and so that you can have that uh, coupon pop up. I yes. Was, yeah, I was going to say, is that I guess you could do it multiple ways, but if it's on the same Wi-Fi network, both devices, or is it a Bluetooth connection? Yeah, I guess you can do it in a different in, in in a number of ways. You can do it through a login account, I guess, right? To, to where you sync the login account, regardless of whether it's on the same Wi-Fi. But the the experience that I have with it, and it's one or two companies that I have uh, experience with in the past, is that they assume that you are on the same Wi-Fi network, so that you you know through the IP uh, you can uh, address the devices that are online, right? Okay, awesome. Um, I guess. Like just uh, one final question about this, the advertising part of the work you've done. Um, what is like the biggest hurdle or challenge that you've faced while, work, while in this line of work, either with a specific client of yours or just in general? 
the biggest hurdle, and that goes for the music part of the business that I worked in, you know, many moons ago uh, in the late uh, 20th century, is standardization. So you can imagine that if you're watching that McDonald's ad on TV and you have to identify that, then you have to have somebody who makes up stuff, basically. You have to make up a title for that ad. You have to put on all sorts of information that goes into a database that later, through most of the time, a website can be queried by clients. So there's somebody sitting on the other end that is a Burger King representative that wants to know if McDonald's has done anything the night before. And now, as a data company, you have to come up with data because it doesn't exist. Uh, come up with data in such a way that it is transparent and easy for clients to search and find what they're looking for. Um, that is the biggest challenge. Gotcha. And that is also the challenge in in uh, in uh, in TV land or in radio land. Some of that stuff has been solved in the past with, for example, electronic program guides, guides, right? The EPGs that you pull up on the screen. A lot of that stuff has since been standardized since that came about. Um, but it's still a problem as far as, uh, for example, who are the rights owners of the music that is playing in a movie? Um, who is the co who is the author? Who is the writer? Who is the producer? That information is not readily available, uh, and it really should be. Yeah, uh, I guess um, one thing. So when you're trying to analyze these commercials, and like you said, with the electronic uh, program guide, are you just cycling through every channel, or how how are you figuring out at at this time of the day, this many times McDonald's had this ad? No, there's actually uh, most of the companies that do this. Some some companies do it uh, on a sample basis, but you know, let's say the more serious ones, if you want, they simply have uh, equipment that is monitored into TV stations 24 hours a day. Oh, wow. um, you know, and some do it even worldwide. I work with a company in uh, in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, that is doing this uh, worldwide. Uh, mm -hmm. They have data center setups. I mean, we at Competitrack that I worked with, that I was responsible for, we had a data set up in uh, the U.S. and in Canada, uh, 100 cities in the U.S. and uh, one or two, lo two locations in Canada covering the whole nation. But this company has setups all over the world, um, including the Middle East, Africa, and, and, uh, and Europe. And, uh, you know, it's all interconnected uh, with, with each other. That opens up a whole new, uh, you asked about challenges, you know, something as simple as Danone, right? The yogurt uh, is not is, is spelled slightly different in France than it is in the US. So if you are the worldwide ad agency uh, for that brand, uh, you want to see standardized information. So aside from the technology, you also get into the standardizing of information. And there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, you know, I've been in this field now since 1986. And some of that stuff, like, for example, what I just mentioned, the documenting of uh, who is the composer and the author of music in movies, has not advanced a whole lot in those 40 years, believe it or not. Something as simple as ISBN numbers that exist for books or barcodes, right, like we know yeah. for products. Something like that simply does not exist for music, and it's it's been baffling me forever since the economic value of that is so high that I don't understand why they haven't figured it out yet. Um, I know doesn't doesn't like YouTube and other make like uh, maybe Facebook uh, or Instagram don't they have some kind of software that prevents you from playing copyrighted music yep. for longer yep. than? 
Yep. So, so that is essentially is the same technology. Um, obviously, they can throw a lot of money at it and a lot of muscle power, if you want, to make that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also doesn't work perfectly, and it doesn't work in real time, for example, right? So you can upload a video uh, with uh, uh, copyrighted music, and sometimes hours later you will be notified that the music gets muted, right, in that video. So, you know, you, I mean, it's also, you can imagine that to do that worldwide is, is huge uh, to do that. But yes, the technology is the same. Okay. Um, and, and, and there's companies that try very hard to also uh, use similar sorts of technology to, for example, ban um, a content that is uh, essentially not desirable online, right? Yeah. Uh, you can think of all sorts of things in that sense, political, but also pornographic material or whatever, uh, to try and filter that out and identify that as uh, flag it is mm-hmm. basically technology that is, uh, that is similar, but more advanced these days. Uh, because now you're starting to get in the real, more in the real world of AI, right? Where you are doing yeah. things with uh, with artificial intelligence to recognize patterns in the video. That with the simple fingerprint technology that that I explained to you that we started out with uh, could not be used for that purpose. Yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, it's really impressive that it seems like this technology that you started working with is has just been levered and improved on o- over like multiple iterations. Yep. So, like the the technology itself now might be a little bit different than what it was, but at the base, it's still kind of using the same algorithms. That's right. Well, I mean, AI is obviously a little different yeah. uh, in the sense that it, it it's it self learns and it uses a basis a model, of yeah. uh, of uh, pictures, for example, or sound clips. So that is a little bit different than, let's say, for example, fingerprints. But the idea behind it is the same: that you can learn the system uh, how to distinguish one from the other. Yes. And I just wanted to reiterate one more time that this episode was made with Zencaster and check out our coupon code below if you're interested to utilize their tools. I had uh, one more question too. Sorry, Ahmed. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing originally the computing power was done locally, right? Like with local machines, wherever you were in your office. Yes. Uh, my question now was, I know you mentioned data centers across the world. Are those also handling the computing power or do they have remote machines with like AWS or something like that? Yeah, you can do that. It becomes expensive pretty easily, right? Because AWS wants to make a buck also. Uh, But it's sometimes it's easy because you don't have to worry about the actual uh, uh, finding of the locations and the the deployment of the technology, etc. To give you a hands-on example, when I worked at Competitrack, we started out doing it ourselves because, you know, there was, for example, specific hardware in those machines that you couldn't just get from AWS. Yeah. Uh, later, we figured out ways to convert the the, the videos, incoming video streams to IPTV and that you can feed into any server. So then it became independent and we could basically hand off that technical component to a third-party company, which wasn't AWS because they were too expensive, but another company uh, that we used for that. Uh, so the, the, the short answer is, uh, you know, it depends a little bit on the technical setup. Um, but uh, it can be done, right? Very cool. Is this? Do you see any like large inefficiencies in the way that that this technology is is in its current state? Like, do you see like uh, any specific area where there is significant room for growth? 
you know what what aggravate not aggravates me but what, what what surprises me the most is that there are so many companies that are either doing this redundant right the identification of music or whatever it is or uh, have different uh, ways of doing it to where it becomes very hard to incorporate for people that need all the information so for example a company that that takes care of the payments for composers and authors has to deal with the company that monitors the music on radio which is a different company that does the music online or does the video on tv and then they have different ways of annotating all the information they don't talk to each other because they're they're competitors and in the end you get a data set that is pretty messy yeah and that is understandable but what is not understandable in my in my view is that that same messy data set was there in the year 2000 and now it's 2022 we're about to f- set foot on mars but the data <laughs> set in this field is uh, practically unchanged that that to me is mind boggling um it's you know it's mind boggling and at the same time understandable because of all the different interests and 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 protectionism and all of that sort of stuff not to mention the the global uh, impact of things where things are not always the same you name it uh, so it's very 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 hard to to uh, put some standardization in there but you know it would considerably reduce cost and just simply uh, make for a fair model for everybody both on a commercial basis as well as on a fair use basis. What do, what do you think prevents just like one company from adopting all the different technologies needed for radio, for TV, for online, and trying to like unify all of the data like themselves? Like, do you think this would be too large of an undergoing for a single company? Yeah, I mean, again, I have the hands-on experience because the company I worked for was acquired by a a company that cobbled together a number of other companies. Mm -hmm. And that company, uh, uh, when I left, was acquired by a company that actually caused a a, a compete uh, investigation, a competition, uh, unfair competition investigation by the government. Uh, Non-compete. Yeah, so they had to get approval as you sometimes hear also about big acquisitions that you read about in the press or whatever, at some point it becomes a monopoly that is just too powerful. Uh, so then, you know, a, a, a government may want a, a breakup or they will uh, stop the stop the uh, the merger from happening. I guess it's... Um, do I? I, guess, I guess that kind of boils down to either making the decision of letting it become monopolized, which we don't really believe in in the United States, or right. trying to standardize things, so then it makes it easier for everyone consuming the data. USB C, like USB C. What they recently did in Europe, I don't know if you heard about that, no. but uh, the European regulator is forcing USB C to be the one and only standard for charging uh, devices. So Apple is going to have to uh, change the way that they deal with things because they have their own uh, plugs and, and cables, right? As yeah. you know. Europe has said, you know, enough of this. It creates too much garbage and all of that stuff in the environment. Uh, uh, we are going with one standard plug. Just like when you go to the gas station, it's not like, you know, when you when you drive a Ford or you drive an Audi that you have to uh, worry about whether the gas gauge fits in your, in your car. It's the same size everywhere. Uh, so it's not always monopoly. Sometimes it's just uh, standardized. And that's what we need to get to. Well, right. I guess that's balancing uh, like the good of the citizens or the good of the company. 
right yeah that is a that, that is a whole other podcast that you can get into yeah you can do five <laughs> episodes on that <laughs> Well, we the know good in America, of, they don't. They the don't good of corporate America versus the good of the citizens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I know. I know you touched earlier on um, the idea of like trying to have a better way to credit uh, composers and artists who create music or create audio of some kind. Um, similar, create, create content, basically. Right. Yes. Yes. Do you th- do you have any ideas, or um, maybe have you seen anything that seems promising for a good way to credit these individuals or these groups? Well, modern platforms, for example, like Spotify or Apple Music, are obviously uh, you know vastly different in the way that they can deal with this stuff than old-fashioned radio stations, where a DJ would have to write a list of the songs they were playing. Uh, and that was the way it was when I got into this business. It has changed since, even at classical, uh, you know, traditional radio stations. But obviously, with the advent of computers and digitization and all of that, uh, things have changed dramatically. At the same time, it has fractured, right? I mean, every play that is on Spotify is now a, f- a fraction of a penny. Uh, it, it, it pays because it's millions, sometimes billions of streams. Uh, but it's also harder to to administer and 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 check. But I think that that model is probably better. And I'm, from what I understand in the business, it is considered better. Also, YouTube, etc. Same thing. That the value of those media is sometimes even greater than the traditional uh, media. Um, so that is that is an uh, you know an, a development that I think is a good one. Do you know how large? Uh not the industry of music in general, obviously, but what the technology that you're working with, I feel like because selling data in the modern world is really huge is the money that flows through here has to be uh, pretty sizable, right? Oh yeah. It's, you know, uh, billions and billions of dollars. Um, you know, again, the company that I worked for was acquired for a billion dollars to give you an idea of $1.6 billion, I believe. Uh, the, the, the companies that take care of paying uh, authors and composers, there's four of them in the United States. Uh, the two larger ones each have a billion dollar revenue. So they, they collect a billion dollars from radio stations and concert venues and TV stations, etc., cetera, uh, to turn around and pay to the people that create that content. That's, that's, that's $2 billion plus, plus a little, plus some change. So the, yeah, the, 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 the economic value is huge. And that's just the United States. Okay. Okay. Um, so now, if, if we take a step back and um, talk about like earlier on in your career, how did you learn about this? Um, like was college, a f- like I know you said you did, um, you did uh, more of like business studies, right? In college? Yeah, like I said, I, you know, I, business studies, yes. So that was a good basis, right? A theoretical basis. The practical basis came from uh, simply uh, getting a computer you know, I can go into that in a whole different podcast, but my dad uh, promised me a computer if I made it to the first year of college because I was kind of a dropout in high school. So he figured he could promise me that without having to deliver. <laughs> but then I passed uh, that first year uh, in, in college uh, pretty well. Now, a computer, an IBM PC, the first IBM PC at the time was about uh, eight nine $9,000. Wow. Uh, so that's what he had to fork over. <laughs> 
We think and um, you know, I turned it on, and uh, it took me a day to figure out that I needed to insert a floppy disk for it to boot because that's at the time how that worked. Um, anyway, so I, I started to program, uh, and that is something that I think, from what I understand, that John and I may have in common, yes. that we can get lost in that pretty easily. Uh, so I had at some point I had that IBM PC sitting on my desk, and I had a keyboard with an extension cord to where I could lay in bed and still program. Or if I woke up with a good idea, I could immediately grab the keyboard and and type. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, you know uh, fascination that I had for that stuff. Uh, and I I learned different languages. I created all sorts of applications, and that's uh, what helped me also in uh, getting the first job that I got. And in that first job, somebody uh, got me on the path of this company that actually is in White Plains, believe it or not. And I was in the Netherlands at the time. The world is small. And uh, that company came with a presentation of an automatic identifier of music. So you have to imagine that with what I just told you about that PC and the floppy disk and all of that was the state of affairs. No internet, no nothing. Somebody puts on a cassette player. It plays Eric Clapton. And then on the screen of this little amber screen, you see appear after 30 seconds, Eric Clapton. You know, that is the sort of fascination. I remember like it was yesterday. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, that this music was playing and the computer knew it was Eric Clapton. So that was the fingerprint technology at the time. Uh, and that is what got me going, simply being fascinated by what I saw, just like I mentioned that game with the Lunar Lander that I got involved with uh, when I first saw a computer. Uh, those are the sort of triggers that you then get fascinated with and you want to know how it works. And once you learn a little bit about how it works, you start to think about how can I use this in a different way or how can I apply it at home or how can I help a friend do, understand it and get fascinated by it. And mm -hmm. before you know it, you have, you know, a 30-year 30, 30 career. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happened. Well, I also feel like, I mean, you could say this about any career, but with engineering specifically, just because it is about creating something out of either nothing or something else. Right. Uh, when, you know, when you see that new piece of technology or something that's interesting to you, you almost get that like light bulb in the back of your head. Like you just said that now you're questioning everything. How can I use this in a better way? How can I, uh, you know, flip this around to be more advantageous to this specific application? And I feel like that's that's really what you did, right? What language did you start out coding on? And I think what has uh, always set me aside, especially in those early days, if you want, where everybody was so fascinated with technology, is that I never lost sight of what the value of the technology was. So I've never been a geek who wanted to get involved with technology for the for the sake of technology, if you know what I mean. I was always, uh, uh, you know, thinking about what it could do for the company, what co what cost could it save, or what extra revenue could it bring in. And that combination was was pretty rare and has helped me uh, to to uh, get to where I where yeah, I got yeah. basically. Right. It's a pretty lethal combination. Yep. Yep. Yeah. What uh, language did you start out on? Basic. Okay. And then uh, assembly language. I, I learned assembly mm -hmm. and uh, then I went into Pascal and COBOL. Um, and from there I went to, uh, I've done a little bit of Fortran and then, uh, I got into databases primarily and, and got into languages like DBase4 is a, not DBase, a Clipper is a language. No, Clipper is a compiler, but, um, anyway, so, you know, a number of things like that, but essentially they're all the same. I can look at 
current program languages. And even though I haven't learned them, you know, the basics are still uh, uh, the same. So I can oftentimes read code and impress the people that I work with. <laughs> so even <laughs> though helps. you, yeah. So even though you had a, you know, a degree for the business side, BIS, uh, did they, could they see that your advantage or what you brought to the table was that you had the vision of where it could go and that's why you became a manager or were yeah, the manager, the manager part came early in the company that I worked for in the Netherlands. And that was just a boss that saw something in me that I didn't even know I had. Um, but uh, managing people, you know, I never li- really liked it. And at the same time, people liked me as their manager, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it was kind of easy in that sense. Um, and plus, you know, I knew what I was talking about, which always helps when you're a manager. If you know yeah. the details people appreciate that versus a manager just you know that just talks out of out of his rear end right yeah. um <laughs> and i'm sure i've done my share of that but you know what i mean it's it's uh it's uh, knowing a little bit about what you're dealing with uh, that helps people have respect for you as a manager but uh the fun part has always been the the creation part and you know creating a little program to do something and then hand it off to the it department and say look at this proof of concept it can be done now you do it in the formal way and and let's make it happen um so both both elements have helped me obviously because through the management part i had some say so and some uh, some uh, some stature if you want that would move things along but uh, the engineering part is what got my uh, is what got me excited. <laughs> very nice, very nice. I guess um, one one final question from me. I guess just to just to bring it all in, uh, bring it all back together. Um, what is what is the um, I guess product or program that you've worked on that you're most proud of looking back now? Um, I think what I'm, what I'm most proud of is something that I created for that competitor company I worked for, which was a, a program that would automatically slice, uh, videos, video clips out of a feed and bring them back to the repository in the New York office. Uh, that was something that nobody really knew how to do, even the IT department. And so even though it was not primarily my job, I created that tool and it's been running. And actually not too long ago, I spoke to a former colleague of mine and it's still running. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is something I'm proud of. And the second one I'm proud of is, to be honest with you, is a program that I created in 1988 for my brother who runs a landscaping company in the Netherlands. He recently retired and until he retired, he used that program to enter all of the items that uh, that he worked on and to send invoices to his clients. So that software program has run for, you know, 30 years, which is highly unusual for any piece of software. Um, so th- those are two things that I'm proud there, There's more, but uh, those are two things that come to mind. You know, I, I mean, I it's been, it's, it, hear, hearing about your work was just absolutely fascinating and inspiring. Um, because uh, I mean, I like we we both have engineering backgrounds. Um, we both want to be creators and thinkers, um, right? And I have just very recently entered like the tech space, and this this is where I've wanted to be for since since my career started. Um, 
and just hearing about what you you were able to accomplish is very motivating for me and i hope it's also motivating and i know it will be motivating for our listeners as well you know follow your follow what you think is your passion i've i've had my share of people that said including a, a boss of mine in the netherlands who said i needed to quit doing this stuff because he didn't see what i saw and i just didn't listen because i i thought it was great that i was working with so if you believe in what you're doing pursue it because it'll pay off in the long run uh, don't necessarily think it will pay off next week or whatever but uh, as long as you follow your passion it will it will pay off and you will be happy in what you're doing awesome thank awesome. you i really appreciate it you coming on that was definitely a lot of knowledge for the audience <laughs> and for myself. I mean, I'm glad I got to do a little bit more of a deep dive into what you did because we all, we've only had a couple of short conversations outside. It's funny how you can live across from each other for 20 years and not know each other, right? Well, I mean, I was also a child before then. So you were like, well, I don't know it, what he knows. <laughs> but now I've found my footing a little bit in the industry. So no, I think Great. I look forward to more conversations as we cross each other. Sure. Uh, Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. You guys know where to reach us. Black Box Podcast, No A in the Black on Instagram and Twitter. Black Box Podcast with an A in the Black on TikTok. Uh, you can hit us up on email at blackboxsubmission at gmail.com. Other than that, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Hans. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Peace.